beginning a new series today in Mark chapter 1, uh, in, in the Gospel of Mark, I should say. And uh, the aim is to be confronted, I suppose, with um, the reality of Jesus. So I want, to, I want to read to you the first eight verses of this first chapter. If you have one of the church Bibles, there's many at the back. If you don't have a Bible, uh, it's page 1472. And um, we're going to read from Mark 1 in just one second. The title of the series is God Made Visible. Because there's really um, no better place to gaze at Jesus than to read the Gospels and to understand them in their richness. And so let's read these first eight verses of Mark 1 and we'll pray. So it's the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it's written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let me ask as we begin, why, why, are, we, um, why are we delving into one of the Gospels? Up to now, while well, I preached through passages in the Gospels, I never tackled an entire Gospel. And hesitated to do so, actually, because I wasn't, you know, you feel a certain measure of intimidation by um, the breadth and the depth of what needs to be thought through when you're tackling a gospel. And I still don't feel ready, if I'm honest, but I am full of excitement and anticipation. And I just want to tell you why I think this is so crucial. I've got a few reasons why. The first is because there is no greater need, it seems to me, than that we should come to know Jesus more deeply. And speaking first to those of you who are Christian, it is really the call of the Christian to, to study Jesus. Sometimes we, you know, while we know Jesus through different means, including through personal intimacy and relationship with him, I think we can nevertheless miss the main way that God has provided for us to know him, which is the portrait of Jesus that we have set before us in the Gospels. The early church used to read from the Gospels every time they gathered, um, after they'd been written, of course. I'm talking the church in the first few centuries of its existence. They prioritized the Gospels because they wanted to know Christ. And you may look at your own life and think, well, what kind of relationship do I have with God? Is Is my knowledge of Jesus deep? Is it living? Do I experience intimacy with him? And my hope and prayer is that you will, you'll know him better. And if you're not a Christian, of course, the need for this is even more urgent. I think many people try and scoot around um, sort of the periphery when they're looking at Christianity, looking at many of the secondary issues, um, philosophical issues, and issues, practical issues, and issues of the church, and all these kinds of things. 
When really the greatest need always when you're considering Christianity is to go right for the heart and to look at Jesus himself. The whole thing stands or falls on him. So we want to know him. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. We want to love him more deeply. We want to love him with our whole hearts. And I, I think I, I cannot overstate how important this is for the simple reason that without love, the Christian life is a drudgery. If all you do, and there is an element of the Christian life which is, could be negatively framed. It's, there's, there's discipline and will and resistance and fighting because you're wrestling with yourself and you're wrestling with engagement with the world and with spiritual forces as well. And that is crucial to the Christian life. But if the entirety of your Christian walk is framed in that kind of negative way, then you will at some point plateau or crash. Because the greatest driver for Christian growth has to be the positive, passionate love of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's clear when you read the pages of the New Testament. Certainly, these eyewitness disciples of Jesus and Paul and his letters, that it was his his passionate love for Jesus that compelled him to live a a life for Jesus. This week, just by way of illustration, I was reading an article by Oliver Berkman in The Guardian, he's a columnist there and he writes opinion pieces. And he was talking about how uh, this is true in in work and productivity. That if you want to live a life that is full of fruitful labor, achieve much in your life, um, you're very unlikely to get there by a simple act of determination and gritty um, sort of self-discipline. Most people who do a lot with their lives do so from a place of passion and love and excitement about the things that they are engaged with. And he used the example of a German social theorist who had written, I think he's German, he's European social theorist, I'll say, who's written, who spent 30 years writing one of the most important books on social theory. And in between writing this book, wrote 60 other smaller books. And when asked towards the end of his career how he'd managed to achieve so much in his life, he said, I only ever do the things that I enjoy. And there's something very sobering about that. You know, if you think that if, if you think of the Christian life about as grinding out disciplined devotion, then you will not get very far. It is the love of Christ which must compel you. It's it's enjoying him. So we want to know him and love him, but the great result of all this is a third aspect that you'll be changed by him. There's a principle in the Bible that shows us that to That you're changed by what you look at, what you gaze upon, what you focus on is what you become like. And the ultimate example of this is is what the Bible tells us will happen to your life when you come to see Jesus on the last day. And uh, John talks about this. He says that, he says we're God's children now, we're part of God's family. But what we will be has not yet appeared. What will you be? You will be a person who has finally been rid of sin in your life, been rid of the struggle, whose heart is made pure, whose devotion is whole towards God. That's what you will be. But he says, but we know that when he appears, we should be like him. In other words, that ultimate final transformation of your life is going to happen in an instant when you see Jesus face to face. But working that principle back into your Christian life now, the only real way that you grow and are changed is through 
the vision of Jesus, that the more you see him and understand him and are captivated by him, the more you grow to become like him. And friends, this is why we're going to be confronted with Christ in the Gospel of Mark week after week. I feel such a weight of expectation of what God's going to do and say to us as individuals and how he's going to change us through the knowledge of Jesus. Mark himself, the author, is an example of this, by the way. He was, as far as we know, he was not an eyewitness of, of Christ. This guy, sometimes called John Mark, he, we don't think he ever, the scholars don't think he ever met Jesus. And early on, the first time he kind of appears is in the book of Acts. It's halfway through the book of Acts. The first missionary journeys that were done by um, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Barnabas, they started traveling around Asia Minor, like Turkey that, and Greece, those kinds of areas, and preaching the gospel from town to town. And they brought a small group with them who would travel with them as missionary companions. And actually, at one point along this journey, Mark, the very same man who was gospel we're reading here, threw his hands up and said, enough, and abandoned the whole thing. And such was his fear, no doubt, because they were facing dangers in every place. He wasn't, he wasn't compelled enough to keep going. And it actually leads to a massive conflict between Paul and Barnabas. These two men, these two great men of stature in the church, actually have a total breakdown of relationship over this guy, Mark. Because Saul, when they're planning their next journey, Paul says, we're not taking Mark. We'll take someone else, but I'm not taking the guy who abandoned us. And Barnabas, who happens to be Mark's cousin, so a little bit of bias working here, says, we are taking Mark. And they, there's just total disagreement. And they end up going their separate ways. But, and this is the intriguing thing, years later, when you're reading Paul's last letter that he ever wrote. He wrote 13 the letters in the New Testament. When you read his last one, to Timothy, in a jail cell, soon to be put to death. He's telling Timothy some of the things he wants. And he says, bring Mark to me because he's useful to me in my ministry. So not only has he been reconciled with Mark, such as a change in Mark's character through the years of exposure and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, but Mark is also useful to the ministry. You wonder, why is he so useful? I, I suspect it's because the content of this book was not just on these pages. It was in his head and in his heart. You know, the early church, they learned these things by heart. Some of the folk in the church, they had this oral history where they learned the teachings of Jesus and the, and the deeds of Jesus, memorized them. And I'm pretty sure that when Paul was, was preaching and discipling people and telling them about Jesus... Mark was very handy to have around because he'd be like, what was, that, what, was that, what was that teaching Jesus gave on this subject? And Mark could just rattle the thing off because Mark had learned the whole, the whole of the gospel story at the feet of Peter the apostle. So you have in him an example of a man who confronted with the teachings about Jesus, not having been an eyewitness, so he's really in the same boat as you and me. But knowing this stuff inside out, his life was utterly transformed so that he went from being the coward who gave up the missions to being the invaluable pastor and colleague to men like Paul. Isn't that an extraordinary thing? And you've got to wonder, couldn't Jesus do that in your life? Couldn't he do the same things in your life? I want us then to delve into this gospel. And of course, this first little chunk is about this man, John the Baptist. And 
as we open it up, you know, we're meant to see some wonderful things about this guy. And we're going to be asking this question. What, what is a Christ-devoted life? What does John show us is a Christ-devoted life? What, what is it that God might do in your life the more that you're captivated by Jesus in the weeks and months to come? John may strike you as a somewhat extreme example of what God might do in a person's life. But in many ways, I think the way Jesus taught about what it meant to be part of the kingdom, he said that even the least of us are greater than John because he lived on the other side of the cross. We live on this side. We have the gift of the spirit. We have the knowledge of what Jesus would do. And in that sense, John is just the floor. And we are meant to advance beyond what John was. So don't look at him and be dismissive of this radical nutter that John the Baptist was. I think in many ways the principles of his devotion to Christ and his devotion to God and his willingness to be of service are every bit as relevant and vital for you and me today. And I want to show you a few of these things that come out from this short passage about John. Here's the first. As you grow in Christ's devotion, you seek to become prophetic and not popular. You become prophetic and not popular. It seems to me that in life you often have a choice, don't you, between an emphasis on being, on t- telling the truth and on seeking popularity. It comes down to even just simple conversations with friends, doesn't it? When you're asked your opinion about something, even if something as simple as what they're wearing, you can tell the truth or you can be liked. And these things are often in opposition to one another, aren't they? And how, how much we love to be liked and to be popular. It's partly hardwired into us, isn't it? Uh, you know, we see this. You think about this in our culture. How rare it is to find people who are really truth tellers. Who really care passionately about the truth, no matter what. You think about the celebrity culture we live in. I know that some people gain celebrity through a pure love of their art, whatever their art is. But most people gain celebrity because of a hungry, ravenous desire to be famous and to be loved, right? You can almost see it on, you know, in the face of some people. You watch it in the auditions of X Factor or whatever else, don't you? You see that longing to be loved and to be admired. And then think about how so often once people gain fame and gain popularity, they use their, their kind of their position as a kind of a soapbox to campaign for certain issues. And I've always thought this is, a, this is a slightly incongruous situation because here you have somebody who, who, through passionate desire to be loved and admired, has gained fame. Why is it that someone like that, is, is a, why would you listen to someone like that, given that it's not really a qualification for being a prophetic, truth-telling type of person, is it? It seems to me rather that you're more likely to be someone who goes with the grain and of, of culture, really just, which where's the wind blowing, and what will make me more loved, and more admired, and more popular. And the same is true even in our, in our political world, right? We, have, we live in a world where, you know, democracy is the, it's the least bad of all options in terms of the way nation states can be run. But one of its great imperfections is the fact that in order to, to gain power, you have to be popular, you have to be loved. In order to be loved, you have to say the things that people want you to say. 
So in a sense, it's a system designed to weed out truth-telling and conviction, which is why so often politicians contradict themselves and tell lies. This is the world we live in, friends. In contrast to that, you have a man like John the Baptist crashing into the scene, because his world wasn't actually that different. Crashing into the scene, and he is... He's an extraordinary prophetic character. What's a prophet? Someone essentially who will speak what God once said rather than what people once said. The pursuit of truth matters intensely to such a person. And John comes in and despite the risks, and in fact you should know by the way that the things he preached occasioned his own death. He was beheaded for the things that he preached. So it wasn't as though there was no cost to him for being this kind of a character. But look how he, how he preaches. John, in verse 4, it says, He appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Mark doesn't tell us much about what he preached, but you read the other Gospels and you, you see how in your face he was, talking about issues of justice and issues of mercy and issues of godliness and of purity how he confronted Herod with his adulterous and incestuous situation in which he was was illegitimately married and all these kinds of things. Here he was, confronting people with the reality, you're sinners and you need to turn from your sin in order to experience the forgiveness of God. That's what repentance is, right? And you might think to yourself, well, wasn't, wasn't John's audience an easy audience? Here we are, there's a Jewish nation after all. They're all, you know, they're all God-fearers and he's just telling them what they want to hear. But it wasn't the case. He called for them, listen to this, he called for them to be baptized. Baptism was what happened to people who were converting from being a non-Jew to a Jew. They would call them proselytes from being Gentile to Jew. So here he was, he stands up and he tells all the Jewish people around him, the crowds who are coming to him, he's saying basically this. He's saying you're fake. You think you know God, but your life tells another story. You're fake. You're so fake, in fact, that just like those non-Jews who are going to get baptized and become Jews, you need to get baptized. You need to have a faith of your own. It's not good enough. You grew up in a believing family. It's not good enough that you call yourself a Jew. You're saying you've got to change your life. I think that there is a huge need for people in our day who will have that kind of courage that John did to be prophetic and not popular. In a sense, it goes right to the heart of the Christian call. Because if you, you know, why are you here on this earth? There's many reasons, aren't there? And giving glory to God through your life is one of those, but Among those reasons, and very high near the top of them, is the reality that we live in a world that needs to know Jesus. And every one of us is called to evangelism, to sharing the gospel message. And to speak the gospel is to be a prophet to the culture. And very rarely to find yourself being popular in the culture. You'll discover that very quickly, even among your immediate friendship group, if you are honest about these things. But as Christ gets hold of your life, maybe he'll make you a truth teller. Maybe he'll make you more courageous. 
Maybe he'll make you more prophetic. The ability to speak to people's hearts and to see lives changed rather than always caring about ourselves and whether we're loved and liked, right? It seems to me that the need for this in our day and age is enormous. Not least because we also live in an atmosphere of fake Christianity. That in the church at large, you know, we have, we have, we live in a day and age in which there is so much non-offensive Christianity. The kind of Christianity where you can go in, listen to an affirming message and go home with not a moment of offense. And you have to realize that if you are never offended by what you hear in a church, that is not a church. John crashed into the scene, as I said, with this calling that was given to him by God. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. How was he to prepare the way of Christ, Christ who would come after him? The answer is by calling people to repent of their sin so that they could see Jesus clearly. Let me just say about that briefly as well, by the way. A lot of people think of this the wrong way around. You may be the kind of person who struggles with intellectual doubts about whether Jesus is real or not. Maybe you've called yourself a Christian, but you find yourself wondering and wrestling with the questions. Very often people find themselves in a, in a lifestyle which they know is displeasing to God. Christian or non-Christian, you know that if you were to follow Jesus, there are certain things in your life you have to change. But you reason it through and you think to yourself, well, in order to, in order to change my life, I'd have to be totally convinced that the gospel is true, that Jesus is who he said he was. And that's the kind of first barrier. If I can get through that, then we can deal with my lifestyle issues later. But the problem is that if you understand the heart, and if you understand the Bible's teaching, you understand people's stories, that speak, speak to lots of people around issues to do with this, you've got to understand, actually, these things work very often exactly in the reverse direction. In other words, a lot of people's intellectual doubts are a result of their desire to live the way they want to live, not the other way around. Maybe true for you. It was really brought home to me when I was reading a book by uh, Mark Regnerus called Cheap Sex, which is a, he's a sociologist, he's studied the issue of attitudes to sex in the last, actually of the last century or so, and the changes, the vast changes that have happened, the, the sea changes that have happened in society at large. And he says, you know, it's quite obvious that where you see sexual progressiveness, very often it's joined to irreligion, a lack of genuine faith, or certainly a doctrineless faith, even if people are kind of vaguely spiritual. And usually, he says, people understand it this way. They say that people lose their religion, and then they move towards sexually, being sexually progressive in their mind and, and heart and their attitudes. And he says, and this is his view as a professional and a, and a, and a sociologist and a university teacher. He says, no, no, the evidence shows that it works exactly the other way around. He's not writing, by the way, as a Christian. He's saying it works the other way around. He says, people want to break the boundaries and transgress the boundaries of sexual behavior and views and attitudes. But in so doing, 
they discover that then they find reasons to dismiss the faith which held them back in the first place. And it's not just true in the area of sex, though of course I think that's probably the most powerful reason why people suddenly discover their intellectual doubts about faith. It's true in other areas as well, of course. When John came as a prophetic preacher saying, prepare the way of the Lord, what he is calling for is people to lay down their rights, as it were, to lay down their sin so that they could see Jesus. And really, friends, the same has to happen in your life. If you want to have your love for Jesus rekindled, it may be the case that you need to turn away from your sin, first of all. It may be the case that there are things in your life which you must turn away from, which you must confess to the Lord, which you must say, Lord, I'm going to trust you and go your way instead of going that way, even though I've been wondering. It may even be true that you've been wrestling with the question of whether you could become a Christian in the first place because of all the things you know that you would have to give up in order to follow him. Friend, the call is the same. I think in some ways this is why faith is so challenging for people. Because the trust element of faith is believing that God's way is going to be better. That he'll fulfill your life. That he'll give you joy. This is what John was calling people to. Prepare the way of the Lord. Let your heart be ready that you could know Christ better. And you'll discover that as you turn away from sin and turn to Christ, the joy that you have, the peace you have, the forgiveness that you feel, the cleansing that you experience is going to be utterly life-changing. Here's a Christ-devoted life. You become prophetic and not popular. And by the way, the irony is, of course, even in John's very forthright teaching, it says all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. Because, friends, there is something so compelling, isn't there, about a voice that speaks the truth instead of merely echoing the culture. John was that voice. When you hear those voices, listen. Here's the second thing that God will do in you as he brings about a Christ-devoted life. You begin to seek a life of mission over comfort. Oh, would that our entire church would be, see themselves as missionaries, right? Would that we'd be a, a body of people with a passionate desire to reach our city. It doesn't take many people who are aflame with that desire for extraordinary things to take place. The New Testament story is evidence of that. A few men going around from city to city, sparking something. But their love for the Lord and their focus on mission meant that something erupted that would change the course of history. I don't have any reason to dismiss the possibility that in our church there are people who will be as effective and potent in life as men like this. Why not? When God gets hold of you. Now John was one of these guys. It says in verse 6 that he was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And what does all this have to do with his call to be a missionary? I want to show you. You may sort of dismiss this and just think, well, This is the first century. Of course, loads of people were odd then. They wore strange clothes. You know, they they grew unruly beards. And uh, there was a lot of oddness in the first century. But you've got to understand, he lived in a world that was was 
that was totally overshadowed by the Roman Empire. In Israel, in Palestine, the place where he was living, there were Roman bathhouses, amphitheaters, mosaics in wealthy homes, all kinds of things that were evidences of culture and the richness of Roman influence all around them. They knew what it was to be normal, in other words, as we would understand it, and sophisticated and all those kinds of things. And even by their standards, John is so weird that Peter heard about John and told Mark about it, and Mark wrote it down for posterity. Here's a guy who lives in the wilderness wearing the weirdest garment and eating the strangest diet. And you've got to ask the question, why? What on earth was he doing this for? Was there some spiritual principle at work in his life? Part of the answer is just that he was, in many ways, walking in the history of the prophets. The prophets always were a little bit like this. But that doesn't really answer the question, why were the prophets like this? Why was Elijah like this? Why were the prophets so odd? I think the answer goes back to, you know, we can get a clue from a verse like this in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12. We're told one of the great spiritual principles of, of how to live a life for God. And we're told specifically to, he likens the Christian life to a race. And he says that you should lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Just as in the, in the first century, runners competing would actually run naked. It was like they wanted to be completely unhindered. And he said, you need to lay aside all the weights, everything which would drag you back. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, he says. And in there, there's so much that you can say on this. But essentially, it's that those who would run fastest and run farthest are those who who have the most singular focus and devotion. Who are kind of blinkered, actually, in the way that they approach life. And that they they jettison things which distract them, sometimes temptations and sins, but also sometimes, you know, as he puts it here, weights. Just things which are heavy and cumbersome to carry with you if you want to run any distance or go with any speed. And in a sense, that's exactly what I think we're seeing at work in John's life. I'll show you how in a few ways. One aspect of this this is that he rejected comfort. You know, his father, Zechariah, was a priest. You know the story from one of the other Gospels that in Luke's gospel, we're told that Zechariah was on his priestly duty when he saw an angel and told him he was going to have a son and that he would be an important figure. John should have followed in his father's footsteps. That's how it worked in those days. And the priests were looked after by the people. The people gave a portion of their income to take care of the priests so that the priests would not have to concern themselves with earning money to feed their family. So John could have had quite a comfortable life in that sense. But for some reason, I want you to think about this. Why would this be the case? He decides to turn his back on that so that he can live in the wilderness and eat bugs and scrape around in between rocks to find honey so that he can forage for an existence. He asks himself the question, why? And it seems to me that at the heart of this is a principle that you can see elsewhere in the pages of Scripture that there's something about the rejection of comfort if you want to live a single-minded life for God. Now it's not, we need to be clear here, it's not that asceticism, which is the infliction of pain and suffering upon yourself or simplicity, necessarily produces godliness. Paul says it's fruitless to do that. But the opposite should be considered, that sometimes a totally comfortable life makes you very blunt. 
And you ask why. Why is it that, you know, for example, Jesus pointed out that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. There's something about comfort and ease and wealth and all these kinds of things which can dull you spiritually. And you ask why. And I don't think it's that difficult. It's because when you have everything you need, you feel no dependence on God. And it seems to me that John, in wanting to become more effective for the Lord, put himself in a position where he had to depend on God every moment of every day for his very existence. But there's more to it than that as well. Here he was living in the wilderness. And it seems to me that he separated himself from people, from the crowds. Now, it's not that he didn't meet people. He obviously spent much time with people and spoke with thousands of people and counseled them and offered them teaching and advice and all the rest of the things that a a man like this would have been doing. But he was standing outside the crowd because it seems to me that sometimes you can only get a true perspective when you're outside a situation, right? I remember some years ago watching a program in which some tribes people from a very rural context had been brought to to London to come and experience the city. And their first morning out, they decided to head out early in the morning. They walked across London Bridge. They saw the crowds of, of commuters in the rush hour plodding their way across the bridge. And everyone, unsmiling, cold, shark dead eyes, just wandering like zombies across the bridge. And these guys are looking at each other like, what on earth is going on? Because obviously they're trying to greet people and say hi and smile and no one's returning anything. And this is not the situation they're accustomed to. And obviously their shock in experiencing London was because they were outsiders looking in. And it seems to me that sometimes you only get a true perspective on, on life and on, on truth and on morality and all these kinds of things when you are kind of separated out from a situation. And here's John. He's, he's living a slightly odd life. And he's, he's, he's pulled apart from the crowd. And it's partly to do with wanting to foster a heart that is holy to God. You know the word holy? It's often said that it means set apart. And that is certainly part of its meaning. It means to be set apart from things that can kind of dirty you or sully you or, or kind of that kind of make your life unholy or unclean. But also, there's a positive meaning. It means to be set apart for, so that you can be devoted to, specifically devoted to God. And when I read about John as this man who was in the wilderness, eating and foraging off the land, and living this kind of rough existence, it seems to me that there's a very deliberate aspect to this that he he wants to be set apart for God and equipped and made sharp so that he can be used by God and here's the truth at the heart of it that those who would know God most deeply must must experience separation from the crowd from distraction from constant stimulation and put into isolation and devotion and solitude to God regularly and often And develop the strength and the sinewy strength that enables you to have deep convictions that go down to the roots of you. I find it interesting that Jesus Jesus clearly noticed this stuff about John. (laughs) Because when he's commenting to 
a crowd about John. He asks them the question. He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? In other words, what was the appeal? Why did you all go out to listen to this preacher? And he kind of rhetorically asks, a reed shaken by the wind? You know, you can picture somebody soft-spoken and delicate and unwilling to, without much conviction in what they say. It's clearly the answer is no. He says, he asks, a man dressed in soft clothing? He says, behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. And then he goes on and he says this in relation to John. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. What does all this have to do with mission? It's simply this. God God can't use blunt instruments. There was something about John's very practical choices that expressed his desire to be completely devoted to the living God. Time, entertainment, food, clothes, physical Existence, position, location, all of these things mattered because he wanted to run with singular focus for God and develop the kind of gruff strength, even violence, that Jesus commends as necessary for those who would be on mission with him. Jesus is going to stretch and strengthen you and make your muscles tighter the more devoted you become to him and the more that you learn that this life is not about just being comfortable. There are many gifts that we can enjoy from God, but that's not essentially what life is about, is it? Life is about knowing what God has you on this planet for and then living like there's no tomorrow. You seek a life of mission over comfort. Here's the last thing. You're going to seek devotion over ambition. Devotion instead of ambition. Many of us, many of us resonate with the things I'm saying. You want to live a life of Christ. You admire John. You admire men like this. We hold them up as heroes. If you don't have any of that desire, then it has to begin with a relationship to Jesus. You have to know him. You have to know what he's done for you. you know, as you love him, you are compelled to live for him. It happens. It's a natural result. And most of you who are Christians, you know what I'm talking about. You don't want to live a life that's kind of average. You don't want to die and be faced with Christ and him say, that was okay. You know, you want him to say, well done, good and faithful servant, don't you? You want, you want him to commend you for your, for your discipline and your love and your passion and your service and the things that you did for him, right? I hope you do. I hope that resonates in your heart. But even amidst all that desire, you know that the heart is a very murky and complex thing. And that it's very hard to tease apart what your true motives are. Because on the one hand, you know, if you desire to, to do something for God in this life, it can be possible that what you really crave is recognition and success and achievement. And if you were not a Christian, all of that passion and desire would be devoted to whatever else you were, whether it be career or family or something else. You want to be recognized, to be brilliant. But 
that can be part of the heart. And I think we all understand what that feels like, that tug, that pull. But on the other hand, you know, we, we're driven and pulled and compelled by a, a pure and sincere love for Jesus, aren't we? We, we love him. We want to live for him. And it, you know, when in our best moments, we can, we can recognize that it really doesn't matter whether there's any recognition, any praise, any acknowledgement of things we've done, as long as Jesus is made famous, right, in our best moments. John was one of these guys. You see how in verse 7 it says, as he preached, he said, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Understand what he's saying here. In, the, in their context, in first century Judaism, a teacher who had disciples who were his followers, who were learning at his feet, those disciples would do everything for the master. They'd fetch him food, they'd fetch him drink, they'd make sure he had a place to sleep for the night. They'd do whatever he needed to make sure he's comfortable, except one thing, they would never touch his feet. My wife's a doctor, she hates and despises feet. She dreads that moment when people come in and take off their shoes and say, I've got this problem with my foot, let me just call my colleague. And so these disciples, they would never, they would never because it was, it was too low, it was too shameful, the foot was regarded in that way. Slaves or servants, on the other hand, they not only had to do everything for a master, they also had to take care of their feet, including washing their tired feet from walking through dusty roads and all the rest of it. Which, of course, is why when Jesus washes his disciples' feet, it's so heavy with, with poignant meaning, isn't it? Because there he is, taking the position of a servant or of a slave. And what John says here, think it through, he says, I'm not just a disciple, I'm not even a servant or a slave, I'm somewhere beneath all of that. Because I'm not even worthy to touch the feet of Jesus. How can God produce in you that kind of selfless devotion to the Lord? It's not through self-loathing. I don't think John had any self-loathing. I think he had a very healthy sense of who he was and what his calling was. You can even see it here when he says, he, he who comes is mightier than me. He knows that there's a certain might in his life. He sees it in the people turning to, to God through his preaching. He knew his calling. His parents raised him with the knowledge of what he was uniquely called to do. There's no self-loathing going on here. And it seems to me that people who are full of self-loathing very often are not very useful to God for the simple reason that they think about themselves far too much. And we all recognize that, don't we? That when there are parts of our lives that we despise, when we turn inwards on ourselves in self-hatred, we become much less useful. All the joy goes, all the energy goes, and we just wallow in a pit of self-pity, don't we? That's not what John is about here. Nor, nor is it the case that you can simply summon in yourself the will to live for Jesus and not for yourself, like it was some decision you make at some point. Because friends, your heart is too complex a thing to simply decide that you're going to not care about yourself and recognition and praise and all the rest of it. We're too hardwired to love ourselves, it seems to me. I think the only 
way you can possibly understand how a man like John, a man of ample gifts and extraordinary raw passion and ability and all the gifts that he had, the only way you can understand the depth of humility and grace that had come upon his life such that he would be the one who said, you remember the phrase in John 3, he must increase but I must decrease. That's kind of the motto of John's life. It's his very reason for existence. Jesus must increase. I must decrease. How do you understand what God had done in his heart? Friends, the only way I can get a handle on this is to understand that this has to be in effect. The result, the consequence of a man who believes the gospel. This is what God does in you when you believe the gospel. I love how Tim Keller summarizes the gospel message. It's that we're more sinful than we dared imagine, but more loved than we ever dared hope. And it's extraordinary how in in this message, uniquely, in the gospel message at the heart of our faith, is at one and the same moment, the power to humble you to the ground and rid you of self. Because you recognize and you see yourself for what you are. That without the grace of Christ on your life, there's a sordidness, there's a dirtiness, there's a brokenness, there's a rebellion. All those things are true of you in God's eyes, right? And the gospel humbles you to the ground, but at the same time, it elevates you because he says, yet he loves you. Yet Christ died for you. Yet he is devoted to you. And his affection is set upon you. And it seems to me that a Christian can only really become like this. Can only really become as John did. As one who can truly and honestly say, he must increase, I must decrease. When you gaze at the face of Jesus and understand his perfection and holiness and your sinfulness, but at the same time his love and adoration and desire for you, that he means you good and not harm all the days of your life. So Christian, let me ask you as I close, do you love this world too much? Do you love the popularity that you can gain in life? Do you love the comforts of this world? Do you love achievement and recognition, all these kinds of things. Recognize that that is toxic, that is poisonous to what it means to live a Christ-devoted life. See those things for what they are. Jesus wants to replace all of that with himself. And maybe you're not a Christian. I hope that if nothing else today, you you've kind of heard the possibility that you can live a life of something better and more lasting than whatever it is you've been living for up to now. That there can be deeper meaning and significance in a life that's devoted to Jesus than a life that's successful in the world's eyes, that's comfortable, that's well-loved and popular and all that in the world's eyes. You could run after those things, but eventually you're going to die anyway, okay? And everything you built is going to be like a house of cards. Jesus wants to come in and replace all of that in your life too. To be your one obsession. To be your one desire. 
as we're confronted with him in the pages of this gospel, that it be our prayer that Christ will captivate us. Amen? Can we bow our heads and pray together now? Jesus, we do want to invite you to show yourself to us so that we will be captivated by you. I pray, Father, that you would so pour out the Spirit upon us as a church. That, Lord, conviction of sin would lead to true repentance, and true repentance would lead to deeper knowledge of of you. So that, Lord, we would turn away from all the rebellion and, and, and wickedness that can characterize us in moments or for seasons. And, and be wholly devoted to you. Lord Jesus, I pray that as we uncover the pages of this gospel, that the Spirit will breathe upon the words. And Lord, that you would come alive to us in new ways. That dead hearts will come to life. That apathetic and cold, lifeless Christianity would become something full of vibrancy and joy and hope. And Lord, even that you would put your finger on, lay your hand on the head of individuals in this church. To make them every bit as radical and as passionate as John was in service of your great son, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.